following program is brought to you in living color on NBC. They'll know you've arrived when you drive up in the 1958 Edsel, the car that's truly new from nameplate to taillights. Now your host, Walt Disney. Five, four, three, two, one, zero. All engine running. Liftoff. We have a liftoff. Welcome to that tip-top terrific and splendidly prolific waltz down memory lane, the Mid-Modcast. And here are your Mid-Modcasters, Craig, Paula, and Dave. Welcome to the Mid-Modcast, where all your mid-century dreams come true. I'm Craig. Who are you guys? I'm Paula. And I'm Dave. Paula. A little sultry. (laughs) Nice. Well, I want, you know, oh, I was going to say something that would... I'll say be inappropriate. Yeah, I was gonna say so your dreams can come true. That that went to them. Hey, this is a family show. Okay, all right. Sorry. (laughs) If people wanted to call the hotline and leave a message for us, a memory or something else, oh, you could call the hotline. The hotline. It's a red phone in the back cave. Yes. Two one six three zero nine two two zero four. Two one six three zero nine two two zero. You know what? Now I want a red rotary phone to put on the bar in the Royal Ohana room. Oh, would I that, that be would great? Be yeah, man. Our you can get one of, those totally one, cool. one of those old ones that kind of light up and stuff. That would be awesome. Yeah, kind of heavy different, Yeah, like multi-lines and a hold button. Ooh. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> nice. Uh, we, you can also subscribe to this program. Please do subscribe yes. to this podcast. Apple, Google, wherever you get your stuff. Yeah, give us a good rating. We're there. Give five us stars. a five-star rating. Even if you don't like us, give us a five-star rating. Because we're nice people. <laughs> <laughs> we try. <laughs> give us a five-star rating. We're trying. Uh, let's see here. If you want to email us, you can email at midmodcast at gmail.com. Um, Today we are talking about potpourri. Now, when I was a kid, my mom had potpourri, and it was this apple cinnamon potpourri, and I thought that was dried fruit, and I put it in my mouth. Boy, did I get an unhappy surprise. <laughs> and we're not really talking about pot. We're not talking about potpourri. We're right, not that kind of potpourri, but and the categories oh. are potent potables, letters that begin with G. <laughs> Who Reads, which is a category about books. I'm sure we won't tackle that one. Let It Snow, State Your Name. In that category, all you need to do is state your name. Famous Oprah's and Potpourri. Potpourri. There it is, Potpourri. potpourri. By the way, you guys, it's not, we're not doing the, you know, fragrant-y kind of potpourri today. It's a mixture of things, especially a musical or literary medley. I don't think any of us are doing literary things, but we will touch on music later. A beautiful medley. I don't know. We could we could just sing or hum a medley together. That would. (laughs) And by the way, that that was from SNL's uh, Celebrity Jeopardy. I I just realized the one letters that begin with G. I didn't catch that before. (laughs) Oh, (laughs) Uh, good stuff. 
Well, I'm going to jump right in. What I am doing is fads of the 1950s. And of course, how could you miss the 1950s ducktail haircut? Uh, some called it a DA. You can figure out what the A is. This oh. was a haircut choice for the cool guys, formed yeah. by combing the hair back on the sides and holding it there with a big dab of grease. Hence the term greaser. Oh. It became popular in the rock and roll days. Many of rock and roll idols, I think of Gene Vincent and others who sported a really, really swell ducktail. And uh, this made parents really unhappy for some reason because it was rebellious. Few decades later, a couple decades later, Is that why they long were, hair would they be were rebellious. They were combing their hair. Yeah, of... they, they keep Shh. fixing their duck hair, yeah. their ducktail. Uh, you could use Brill Cream for that. Now, I got some Brill Cream not too long ago. Dave, have you used Brill Cream in a, in a while? I've never used Brill Cream. I've used hair gel before, and I currently use um, a styling clay product, but I've never used Brill Cream. I, I got Brill Cream. I like the way it works, but it smells pretty bad. It doesn't have a very <laughs> yeah. pleasant smell to it. So, oh. so I have a question. Yeah. Um, would, would we uh, would we call what? Um, Arthur Fonzarelli, the way he styled his, styled his hair on Happy Days, would, would that be considered a DA, a, I, a I ducktail? I don't know if he had a ducktail or not. He had a little bit of a pompadour, didn't he? Oh, I I can't, if I saw the okay. back, you'd know. Yeah, the yeah. back, the back right. is the ducktail. The pompadour is the poofy front. And yeah. Uh, also in the 1950s, there was a big craze called the Frisbee. Everybody loved throwing a Frisbee around. Children's first reaction to seeing it was... A flying saucer. And boy, did it become a popular thing. Just a piece of pressed plastic, basically, that he could throw big time at beaches, parks, barbecues. Even dogs love chasing Frisbees. I had a Labrador that would chase a Frisbee until he died, I think. I, <laughs> I tried to see how long he would go one day. It was like 45 minutes. And it was a hot St. Louis day, and uh, I thought, I got to stop before I kill the poor guy. But Aww. he would have kept going. Hula Hoop, <laughs> one of the biggest fads of the 1950s. One of For the kids. biggest fads of all times, invented in 1957 by an Australian. Did you know that? It wasn't invented in Someone Hutsucker from Proxy. Down Under. Uh, no, not the, well, he might have been Hutsucker. No, he wasn't. One of my favorite um, movies. The name Hula Hoop, of course, comes from the Hawaiian dance. Its users seem to imitate the invention was licensed to Whammo, who sold 25 million hula hoops in two months. Two months, 25 million. Almost 100 million international orders followed after that. Uh, they were manufacturing 20,000 hula hoops a day at the peak of their popularity. Wow. Not all nations thought that this was such a great idea. Japan banned the hula hoop, thinking it might promote improprieties. The Soviet Union said the hula hoop was an example of the emptiness of the American culture. Those darn Americans. Hula hoops lost their popularity by the late 1970s, but they're still sold. You can find them today. They're still around. Here's an ad from the 1960s that you can listen to here. Hey, the amazing U-63. Whammo hula hoops are here. Just give it a spin and do lots of tricks. Round the next called Kill the Buzzard. Round your waist, the natural. Slip it way down and do the knee knocker. It's easy to do the stork. Play war. See who can knock the hoop down first. The winner! It's fun to skip with your whammo hula hoop. Throw it away and it boomerangs right back. Flip it up and do kill the buzzard. 
It's easy. It's fun to keep them spinning round and round. They defy gravity. Do all the new dances with the Whammo Hula Hoop. Quick now, run through your hula hoop. Even play giant horseshoes. Become a hula hoop expert. Do the amazing upsy-daisy. It'll climb like magic. Win your big neighborhood contest. Everybody's playing with the new Whammo Hula Hoop. Buy yours today at all toy drug and department stores. Get one, get two, get more. It's the new amazing <laughs> Whammo Hula Hoop. Yes. I love that sound effect they use. <laughs> I, I want to see this. Now, what is the yeah. stork and the, I don't know. Yeah, Paul, I'm, I was just about to say, Craig, when we post this episode, you should uh, post a link on the Oh, I'll, I'll try to find Facebook it again. Page. It was, it was, I had to do some YouTube searching. It was actually one, I think it was on a uh, compilation of 1950s advertisements. So uh, it was kind of buried in the middle, oh. but uh, I, I think, I don't know. I looked at so many, <laughs> it's kind of blurred. In the 1950s, Letterman sweaters were quite popular. They made a comeback in the late 70s, early 80s. I remember I wanted one. I had friends who had a Letterman sweater. And well, you know, they, they were a big deal in the Midwest in the 80s because yeah. I had one. Yeah. I graduated in 82, but I I'm not sure how much longer they were popular after that. Yeah, but. I had the jacket. I didn't have the sweater. And then some of my friends showed up with the sweater. I'm like, oh, that's cool. And then it was like, well, anyway, uh, <laughs> these were popular for girlfriends to wear, of course, always popular, even probably to this day. Panty raids, legend <laughs> states. <laughs> Legend states the tradition started on the night of March 21st, 1952. It was a cold winter night uh, at the University of Michigan. Approximately 600 male students stormed a women's dormitory and confiscated underwear. Word got out oh. and soon college guys across the country started participating in these escapades. So they the have to yell, raid. Patty raid. Oh, yeah. So, so Revenge of the Nerds. Uh, I'm just yes. kind of curious. So did they like just barge into their rooms and like rifle through their dressers or apparently go to so, the laundry room? I, I can't imagine in our current day of uh, political correctness that you, no. you could get away with such a thing. Yeah. <laughs> <But> <laughs> you, you would probably be expelled and burned at the stake if you tried it these know. days. Right. 3D movies <laughs> were all the craze. You remember those 3D movie glasses yeah. where one side is like blue and blue the other and side's red. red and those were actually pretty cool when i was a kid we had 3d posters that came with those glasses oh really and uh that, that was kind of cool but got a little dose of that you you had to wear those things and you looked really kind of nerdy but devo kind of brought them back and made them cool again back in the 80s uh as the strippers sing in gypsy uh you got to have a gimmick even though <laughs> Even though 3D movies had been around uh, as far back as 1922 and never really lost oh. favor. And they're still popping up here and there. Uh, of course, not with the blue and red lenses, but still. Uh, it was decided to try again. Arch Obler's Buona Devil started the 3D craze uh, of the 1950s. It premiered November 26, 1952 and starred Robert Stack, Barbara Britton, and Nigel Bruce. People were issued glasses, which facilitated the 3D effect. Previously, 3D used uh, anal. Now I can't say this. Anaglyphic process, and those glasses were the red and green ones. This distorted the whole film by uh, discoloration. Enter Polaroid. 
and a newer system called Natural Vision. Polaroid glasses were nearly clear and so did not detract from the viewing experience. At first, industry experts predicted that 3D would do for movies what the talkies had done. Never really, really quite did that. Some surprising titles were filmed in 3D, such as Hondo, Kiss Me Kate, Dial M for Murder, but often their 2D versions outsold the 3D versions, and the industry got a big hit. Well, it's interesting you mentioned Dial M for Murder, Craig, because they re-released it into the theaters in the 80s. That's when I first saw it, and and it was the 3D version. Mm. But, I mean, there's really nothing, like, there's no spectacular action in that movie that really warrants it to be in 3D. Like, you know, somebody would hold out a letter or a file folder or <laughs> like to the camera. Yeah. You're like, what? Okay. But, um, but it was also shot in a way of where the camera was like, like eye level with some of the furnishings. So you'd see like a table, a table and a lamp in the foreground and, you know, somebody standing behind it. But I mean, it was really kind of a weird movie to make 3D. Yeah. Well, you know, they started pushing real hard again uh, with movies like Avatar in yeah. recent oh, yeah. decades. And then a lot of And, you know, 3D. some films are actually shot for 3D specifically for the effect and, and that right. sort of thing. So it's, it's kind of. Well, in, the, in Disney theme yet. parks and probably other theme parks too, like um, It's Bugs, a Bug's Life. Bug's Life, yeah. That's yeah. what I thought of immediately. Yep. Yeah. So anyway, you got that. Uh, also popular with the kids in the 1950s was ant farms. Oh, <laughs> Real yeah. ants were put in a glass frame with dirt, and you would watch them make their paths and everything else and follow what. It's always fun to watch until it gets knocked off the table and breaks, and then you've got ants all over the house. Ooh. Or condensation gets in there. Remember oh, that yeah. would happen. And, yeah. Um, Remember, there there were always ads in the back of the comic books for the ant farms. Right. Along with, do you guys remember, sea monkeys? Yes. Sea, sea monkeys. monkeys. <laughs> I had sea monkeys. They we never, need to do an episode never about sea monkeys. They did what, what we thought they were going to do. Yeah. Also, those x-ray glasses. Ooh. Oh, the x-ray glasses. <laughs> I never yes. had those, but uh, I'm sure they were. That's right. I'm sure they were just great. But the sea monkeys, they were wearing crowns. They were, yeah. they were looking right. like people. Right. <laughs> no, they're called brine shrimp. That's yeah. <laughs> blackjack chewing gum, licorice flavored chewing gum. I love me some blackjack chewing gum. Did yeah, you guys man. like blackjack? I do. Blackjack's good stuff. Uh, let's see. Bubblegum cigars. Those are still very cool. You don't see them very often anymore. Gum shaped to look like cigars. Some even had a pink, pink tip uh, to look like they were lit. Same with the bubblegum or candy cigarettes. Same kind of thing. Well, I hops. think you can yep. you can still go to like party supply places and buy boxes of either pink or blue bubblegum cigars to give out when your kid is born. Right. right. Yeah. <laughs> well, there, I, I think if you go to uh, somewhere like Cracker Barrel, sometimes they have like a oh, little tiny yeah, candy yeah, section. Yeah. You can find all sorts of Acme does stuff. too. Acme does. Our local grocery store they has kind of, super old timey candy. Yeah. Really? Mm-hmm. I'm gonna have to take a look. Wait, the the candy is called Acme or the grocery store? The grocery store, store. The grocery store is really? called Acme. Wow. Yeah, can you believe we have a local keep, chain called Acme? I keep Acme. wondering why I don't see Wiley e. Coyote roaming. I was about to say, can you buy like Road <laughs> Runner contraptions? Yeah, and- <laughs> right. Dynamite. Yeah, I always think you should be able to buy dynamite at our grocery store. You should. This is America. You should be able to get dynamite in a supermarket. Oh. Sh- <laughs> uh, let's see here. Car hops. Uh, 
even into the 1980s, you could find car hops in Southern California sometimes, uh, roller skates. We've got one right around the corner from us, uh, Swinson's here in Ohio. It's a, um, no, not you guys still have Swenson's? It's well, not a it's ice cream place. It's not the ice cream place. It's a burger oh, place. Oh. Burger place. Oh, burgers. But they okay. don't roller skate. They just run. They run yeah, like maniacs. It's, a old, it's, a, it's yeah. been in business, I think, 80-something years. It's still right around the corner from us for 80 years. I'm thinking well, Sonic a, is similar. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, Sonic, yeah. they come out to you. I'm thinking yeah. about getting a part-time job at Swenson's. I need the exercise. <laughs> <laughs> just Those running back and forth. It. Yeah, they're running all over. Finally... The ultimate fashion accessory for any kid in the 1950s, the coonskin hat. Oh, yes. Oh, yeah. Yes. Davy Crockett, Daniel Boone. How can you go wrong with the coonskin hat? And uh, I had one. It wasn't real coonskin. It was uh, oh, yeah? a Disney production of uh, some sort of fake fur or something like that. Do you so, think they were ever real? At Disney? No. The, well, just in general. I'm Were sure. they really made out of real coon skin? I'm wow. sure that uh, Davy Crockett's was. Well, Probably I'm sure not the ones for kids <laughs> from the not t- TV show. So, <laughs> I know, Craig. Anyway, <laughs> that that closes out my whole section here, and we'll have a commercial. Well, I never felt more like singing hooray. Just drove a new Ford, and I'm here to say it's all new. It's sure a new kind of Ford. Well, no car for the dough is a car so long. No car for the dough is so rugged and strong. And in Ford, you get a new kind of ride. The frame inside this Ford is new. There's new ball joints, suspension too. They ride you all so sweet and low. You never know there's bums below. Now, that was Bumps Below, not Bums Below, just in case you were wondering. Oh. <laughs> was that, do, does it give her credit on that? Who, who, uh, it sounded like Roger Miller almost. Once again, one of many commercials jammed into one video. <laughs> <Okay>. that... <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> I just ripped off parts of it. Paula, you're going to tell us about a special little guy. Well, I was just going to talk about a very famous actor of the 1950s. Um, See if anybody at home can guess who this is. He actually has a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame in movies and TV shows. He was a TV show star and a movie star, and he co-starred with Elizabeth Taylor, Mickey Rooney, Jimmy Stewart, Janet Leigh, June Lockhart, Roddy McDowell, John Michael Vincent, Morgan Ooh. Brittany, Larry Wilcox, and Suzanne Summers. And he always plays a girl in Whoa. every movie, even though he's a boy. Whoa. He's a guy. And he was hired um, after the original star was supposed to do this big stunt. And in this stunt, the original star was uh, asked to swim a river and absolutely refused to do it. The girl, the woman. Mm. And so he said, I'll, I'll jump in and do it. And he was, he was on the set just hanging out and he 
we they said let's bring this guy in and he swam the current he hauled himself out he laid down without shaking the water off of his coat he crawled while lying on his side and then finally laid motionless completely exhausted and he did it all in one take and all of a sudden they said we have found our star now i said the word coat so you probably have already figured it out figured out this was a dog and this dog originally could not stop barking its original handlers and owners were going crazy he would not stop barking and he would not stop chasing motorcycles so he was handed off to some different trainers, and one of the great trainers did stop the barking, but could not stop that motorcycle habit. And then so he handed him off, and eventually he ended up getting him back because he saw what, a, what great stunt work he did. And the name of this star is Pal, and Pal is a very famous male rough collie. Starring June Lockhart, Hugh Riley, John Provost as Timmy, and of course, Lassie. Well, Lassie started as a short story originally, and then it developed into a novel called Lassie Come Home by Eric Knight. Then the uh, the book was filmed by MGM in 1943 with the dog named Pal playing Lassie. Now, who was, you know, this first Lassie? Of course, it's Pal. And then you might have noticed I I listed off some 70s stars and things. And um, in a way, Pal kind of starred with them, too, because Lassie was all played by the, uh, the same line of dogs, the same lineage. And Pal, the very first Lassie, continued to be Lassie until 1954. So he actually was in Lassie Come Home as well as six other MGM feature films. Now, Pal's owner and his trainer, you know, the one who stopped him from barking constantly but could not stop the motorcycle habit, was Rudd Weathermax. And Rudd Weathermax, after this dog was in Lassie Come Home and all these other great Lassie movies, he acquired the Lassie name and the trademark from MGM. And um, and so he appeared with Pal as Lassie at rodeos, fairs, and similar events across America in the 1950s. And then in the 1954, a TV series debuted, and over the next 19 years, a succession of Pal's descendants appeared on the series. The Lassie character has appeared in radio, television, film, toys, comic books, animated series, juvenile novels, and other media. Pal actually passed away in 1958, and his descendants continued to play Lassie even today, they do. And nine, um, all nine Lassies have been male dogs who played female dogs. Now, when the TV st- series started in 1954, and it ran till 1973, I found that kind of shocking, but I do remember seeing it when I was a kid. Um, Lassie's family, when it started, consisted of, of a boy, Jeff Miller, who lived with his widowed mother and grandfather on a farm outside of Calverton, California. Then in 1957, oh, a ton happens to Lassie's family. <laughs> Gramps dies. Lassie is... Um, brought home uh, he brings home this runaway kid named Timmy 
Jeff's mother discovered that she couldn't run the farm all by herself, so she sold it to Ruth and Paul Martin, which were Cloris Leachman and Hugh Riley. You love Cloris Leachman. I know. I, oh, my gosh. I love <laughs> Cloris Leachman. She's one of my faves. Um, what's the show we watch her in? Um, Raising Hope. Raising Hope is just, <laughs> oh, it's so funny. And she's amazing as as the grandma. So anyway, that's neither here nor there. So Cloris and Hugh adopt Timmy. And they, along with Timmy, they brought, they got Lassie too. By 1958, Ruth was being played by June Lockhart. The cast remained much the same until 1964 when the Martins sold the farm. They moved to Australia and they left Lassie behind to work with some forest rangers. So hmm. Lassie's had quite the life in his TV show. Wow. Now, since the, the original Lassies, these are the, the names of the real Lassies in order. So first there was a pal. And then there was a Lassie Jr. Male, all males. Then Spook. And then Baby. Meyer. What a weird Meyer. name. Meyer. Hey, hey. <laughs> Hey, hey. <laughs> These are some weird names. The old man. And Who names a puppy the old man? I know. I think that's cute, though. The old man. And the last one, Howard. Howard. <laughs> and Howard uh, was the 1993 Lassie. Why only male dogs? Well, actually, mature female collies go into heat twice a year and then they lose a hard hard large part of their coats during that time so it kind of ruins the dog's appearance for as much as like a third of the year um the lassie movies by the way are lassie come home in 1943 and that is with elizabeth taylor there's son of lassie courage of lassie hills of home the sun comes up Challenge to Lassie in 1950, and then The Magic of Lassie in 1978. Now, here's hmm. a fun fact, a cool fun fact. fun fact. Lassie has a pet. All the Lassies have their own pets. What? Every, the generations of Lassies have had pet dogs, so they don't get lonely while they're traveling on promotional tours. For many oh, wow. years, a small, silky terrier was the <laughs> companion of Baby, Lassie the Third. 1993's Lassie Howard rarely goes anywhere without his pet, his pet Jack Russell Terrier Melvin. Howard and Melvin. <laughs> Howard and Melvin. <laughs> anyway, so I'm um, just a kind of a sweet story. In 1957, Pal was growing blind, deaf, and stiff. The first Lassie, and he rarely visited the Lassie set. The star of the show, John Provost, later recalled, as young as I was, I recognized how much that dog meant to Rudd. That's the man who trained him. Rudd loved that old dog as much as anyone could love an animal or a person. Pal died of natural causes in June 1958 at the age of 18, which is about 85 oh, in dog wow. years. Yeah, Lassie's, or That's Lassie's. a long Collies, life for a dog. Yes, yeah, right. Collies are big dogs, too. So yeah. yeah. And so weather for months, weather wax slipped in, in and out of a very, very deep depression. Bob Weathermax, uh, Robert, his red son, recalled it hit him very hard when Pal died. He buried him in a special place on the ranch and would often visit the grave. This is hmm. interesting. Dad would never, ever again watch an MGM Lassie movie. Aww. He could not bear oh, wow. to see Pal. Oh, that chokes me up. He didn't want to have to be reminded of just how much he loved that dog. <laughs> sort of sweet. Now, but hey. other, oh. oh, sorry, Paula. I was just going to jump in and say I have a couple uh, bits of uh, trivia mm-hmm. about Lassie, but really? you can finish. You want to finish, and then I'll. Okay, yeah, I'd love to hear it. There's actually a book about P- 
Pal, The Life of Pal, the dog. Um, Red Weather Wax co-wrote this book about Pal's life called The Story of Lassie, His Discovery and Training from Puppyhood to Stardom. And now their weather um, wax, uh, when they're the next, the ninth generation of um, a weather wax dog was Howard, as I mentioned. And now when they, they do have some modern Mac uh, Lassie movies and they do cast non weather wax dogs. And when they do, there are massive protests that it's not a lot, that there is not a pal casting, but lately there have been, um, non-PAL lineage castings. Hmm. But since there's so many protests, um, they do, uh, they have, like, as of recent, I think they cast um, a dog of the the weather wax um, name and PAL's, one of PAL's lineage. All right, Dave, what interesting little trivia do you have? Well, uh, do you guys know, Paula, you might have seen this in your research, who wrote the theme music? The theme song. Oh, no, the I whistled, didn't look at that. None other than Mr. Les Baxter. Ah, the one we just heard? No kidding. Yeah. Oh, yeah. my goodness. Wow. He, di- he didn't provide the incidental, incidental music for the episodes, but okay. he wrote the theme. And then do you guys know the Disney connection between Lassie and the Disney company? No, I didn't know that there uh, was. There one. was? So Jack Rather, and if, by the way, if you guys haven't checked out um behind the attraction have you seen that yes, show we've watched disney a few Plus? of them yeah so there's one on the disneyland hotel because yes. walt ran through all of his money when he built the park he didn't have a way to build a hotel so he turned to jack rather right who was a tv production guy um and his company produced and distributed lassie from 1971 to 1973. Oh, Rather. Yeah, they talked a lot about Rather on that episode. Right, right. Yeah, Yeah, and then uh, I think his son Christopher sold the hotel to the Disney company in the mid-80s. Oh, okay. Yeah. Rather yeah, was a producer rather. on the on uh, on the Lassie show, the TV show. Yeah, I had yeah. no idea that it was all a successive line of Pal or no. Yeah, and that, I, did I not, didn't know that either. And I That's didn't realize it, it had gone on so long. That show, yeah, that right. series. Yes, <laughs> Micro did it really great. The way I heard it about uh, what Paula was talking about. Yeah, really yeah. I kind of, I guess, I stole a little bit from that because he did a. You great didn't have ep- to own that. You, you oh, sorry. Just- <laughs> Could have just said, yeah, that was really that good. That was a great episode. No, he actually, <laughs> he talked more about the actual running river and right. the the stunt that this dog would not do. Hmm. And how, so he has a great episode about that. Time, right now. Place, here on the stage. Cast, Hilo Jack and the Dame. Title, G.I. Jive. <laughs> Moral, Duck Brother, they're going to let you have it. This is the G.I. Jive Man Alive It starts with the bugle blowing rapidly over your bed when you arrive Jack, that's the G.I. Jive Rudely toot Jump in your suit Make a salute Boot! After you wash and dress, more or less, you 
go get your breakfast in a beautiful So this is a track entitled G.I. Jive by a post-World War II era vocal group called Hilo Jack and the Dame, as you heard the announcer there say, backed by the Paul Whiteman Orchestra. And it features Don Elliott in one of his first professional musical recordings. And I wanted to feature Elliott on my segment of our potpourri episode uh, because he is uh, one of those mid-century artists that, in my opinion, should be more well-known. Kind of like Jackie and Roy when we did the, uh, yes. the husband and wife uh, duos. Um, anyway, uh, Elliott was known as the human instrument. He was proficient on the accordion, vibes, trombone, piano, flugelhorn and trumpet, as well as percussion. He is also a vocalist and is probably most known for his prowess on the mellophone, an instrument he introduced to jazz in 1953. Hailing from Somerville, New Jersey, Elliot was born and raised in a musical family. His father was a silent film theater organist and vaudevillian pianist, and Elliot became his music student at the age of four. Oh, So it's kind of a hereditary thing. He, I guess he got all of his talent from his dad. Uh, just, oh, sorry. No, I, I was just saying, wow, that's, that's cool. Yeah. That's, so uh, just prior to World War II, Elliot briefly attended the Juilliard School of Music. And then in 45, he served on the West Coast in the Air Corps. But after performing on trumpet at an officer's club gig, uh, continued his military career as a trumpeter. While, and, and then while serving, he met a fellow military musician who had an extra set of vibraphones or an extra set of vibes which seems kind of unusual because they're big and bulky and expensive, but Hey, Don Elliott, I have an extra set. You want to learn how to play them, right? Yeah. So Elliott took up that instrument after the war. He attended the university of Miami where he studied harmony and theory composition and scoring in 1948. He became a vocalist in a quartet called high low Jack and the Dame Um, who we heard lead off uh, this segment. In 1950, he joined the George Shearing Quintet playing vibes at a time when the group was at the height of its popularity. And just out of curiosity, are you two uh, Shearing fans at all? Oh, yeah, I love me some George Shearing. So just FYI, um, these, these would have been his releases on the MGM label, which had a more intimate, jazzier style than, than the more lush-sounding Capitol releases. And, and I, I tried to find, like on Discogs, I tried to find a listing of the shearing releases that Don Elliott appeared on, but I wasn't really getting very accurate information. But anyway, uh, we'll hear a sample of the quartet uh, with featuring Don Elliott in, in just a bit. So not only was Elliott a technical musician, he was also an innovator and experimenter in recording techniques. He was a fan of multi-tracking and tape speed manipulation and recorded an LP called The Voices of Don Elliott, where he dubbed up to nine separate vocal tracks on some cuts on the LP. 
to create an ensemble sound as tight as the high lows. And by the way, the high lows was an all guy vocal group. It's not the same thing as high low Jack and the Dame FYI. So um, I'm fortunate to have a copy of this LP um, and it, it is my favorite. It's super innovative. He plays all of the instruments on the record as well as sings every part on the record. And he did it all with overdubbing with tape. Yeah. With tapes, multi-track tapes. Yeah. Um, and, and by the way, there's a ton of his stuff on Spotify as well. So after, you know, hearing this episode, if you want to learn more about Don Elliott's music, you can always go to Spotify. So after recording and, and touring, Elliott turned to composing for cartoons and commercials, becoming one of the most sought after composers on Madison Avenue. And this was another roadblock I ran in, into in my research. Um, I tried really hard to find some commercial jingles that were associated with Don Elliott, but I wasn't able to find anything. So we don't get to hear any of his, of his commercials. But later, an ad man colleague by the name of Sasha Berland and Elliot created the Nutty Squirrels. Have you guys heard of the Nutty Squirrels? No, I don't know that. Sounds funny. So like David Seville's Alvin and the Chipmunks, um, the Nutty Squirrels used the technique of recording normal voices at 16 RPM and then playing them back at 33 and a third RPM to get that that rodent-like sound. And I never knew that was how they did that. I didn't know they recorded it at one speed. Well, I guess I did. I just didn't know it was 16 and 33 and a third. I thought that was interesting. Um, So, you know, they were uh, a competitor, uh, obviously, to Alvin and the Chipmunks. But the Nutty Squirrels used Elliot's scat singing to create a jazzier, more hip-sounding sound than the chipmunks, which were a little more pop, I guess. Yeah. Yeah. So towards the end of his life, Elliot worked with Quincy Jones on various soundtracks, as well as performed as a session musician on both vocals and instruments. And sadly, we lost Don Elliot in 1984 at the age of 57. Wow. my. He died when he was our age, crazy. Yeah, see, that's our age, almost. Yeah, but yeah. such a talent, and um, you know, I I think I think part of the problem, and and this I think this is true about Jackie and Roy as well. He didn't have a consistent label that he recorded with, and I think when you're not with one label who can market you, then you kind of get lost in the mm. shuffle, maybe a little bit, but um. But anyway, uh, to uh, wrap up our show today, uh, let's hear Don Elliott uh, first with the George Shearing Quartet. Um, the, and these are just samples. They're not, they're not full tracks. Uh, then we'll hear him perform along with himself from The Voices LP. And then finally, as the voices of the Nutty Squirrels. <laughs> Thank you. 
I look for my heart, it's Perdido. I lost it way down in Torito. While chanting a dance, fiesta, 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 Perdido. Let's meet for a sweet siesta. Oh, oh, I mean fiesta. Do 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 do